0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Thank you for joining us. We know that uh, Americans are looking around the country, reading the news, and Many people are asking, you know, what is the origin of critical race theory that informs much of the training that we're seeing taking place across the private and public sector? Many of you are asking, well, what are the goals? And as Andy said in his intro, will this new form of identity politics truly heal our nation? A new Cato Institute National Survey finds self-censorship is a way of life for many Americans. And nearly 62% say the political climate prevents them from saying things they believe because others might find it offensive. That's up 57% from, well, from 2017, uh, it was at 57% in terms of those concerns. But what's interesting, these fears are across party lines. Perhaps the most troublesome thing about the research is that nearly a third of the people say they are personally worried about missing out on career opportunities or losing their job if their political opinions become known. And topping the list of those who worry are Republicans with postgraduate degrees. 60% of them say they fear their opinions will hurt them at work compared to 25% of Democrats. Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America reminds us, everybody feels the evil, but what we're asking today is who has the courage or the the energy enough to seek the cure? Again, thank you for joining our discussion on the pervasive twins that under the guise of equality um, make diversity training in government and corporate America and schools destructive, divisive, and harmful. We are going to peel back the onion and deal with some of these very tough issues. Our goal is to leave this discussion with a better understanding of how the constructs of critical race theory and identity politics threaten to destroy our best hope of leaving America a better, stronger, freer America than the one we inherited. And most importantly, we want each person who participated in the dialogue today to walk away with a message of hope and an understanding of how collectively and individually we can embrace strategies to build and strengthen each other through the ideas embedded in the Declaration of Independence. Abraham Lincoln called the principles of this great document a rebuke and a stumbling block to tyranny and oppression. So throughout this discussion, we will hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Jim Lindsay for remarks on critical race theory deconstruction and its Marxist origins. Over to you, Jim.
2: Thank you all for having me. I want to actually try to explain to you critical race theory falls into a broad category of other views that might collectively be called wokeness. It includes queer theory, post-colonial theory, gender studies, fat studies, disability studies, critical studies of nutrition, critical studies of science and technology, critical studies of everything you can imagine. And I want to try to convey to you that this is a completely different worldview And that that worldview has an origin, it has its own epistemology, its own interactions with knowledge, its own pedagogy, its own interaction with education, and it has its own set of ethics that are different than what we have uh, traditionally valued in liberal societies that we've enshrined in our constitution. Now, it's going to be very difficult to try to summarize 150 years of philosophical history to show you where this came from, but I hope I can do that in a few minutes here. Uh, To start, I want to say what wokeness actually is. Wokeness is a fusion of the critical theory school of neo-Marxism, which is a form of identity politics and radical activism uh, that has a very particular worldview that separates the world into liberationists versus oppressors or oppressed versus oppressors. And postmodern theory, which has um, the belief at its core that all applications of truth are actually applications of politics by other means. And so those two things came together in the late 1980s and early 1990s to become what is now woke. So to trace the history, we have to drop back all the way to Karl Marx, really earlier than that, but we'll start with Karl Marx. And we don't have to pay attention to all of Marxism. I want to actually convince you that Marxism is one manifestation of something that is manifesting in a completely different way now. Marx Forwarded in particular an idea that he derived from his reading of uh, Hegel that is called conflict theory. Conflict theory separates society or it says society is separated into stratified groups that have different access to resources and opportunities and that those groups are intrinsically in zero sum conflict with one another. So there is an there is an underclass and then there is an oppressor class that is, is keeping them down. And the point of conflict theory is to raise the consciousness of the underclass to want to revolt and overturn the society. So Marxism is the application of conflict theory to economics in the industrial age. That's exactly what it is. This obviously didn't work. It led to some of the worst atrocities in uh, the 20th century and human history, really. And the failure could not be ignored even by its adherents. And so in the 1920s, following an Italian communist named Antonio Gramsci and another communist thinker named Georgi Lukacs, the Frankfurt School in in Frankfurt, Germany of uh, critical theory was born. The objective of the Frankfurt School was to reimagine conflict theory in a new context, applying it to the ideologies of society, the production of culture. It actually wanted to marry Marx to Freud and drag in other elements like uh, Weber's sociology. And the goal was to start getting inside of people's heads and reinterpret why these communist revolutions weren't succeeding or why they were leading to atrocities or the rise of fascism or whatever else. So conflict theory under the critical theory school of the Frankfurt School uh, shifted positions from economics to culture and ideology, which it was believed that the elites of society produced. Um, along, as this went along, I should say, uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, a particularly pessimistic group of people, cynical group of people in Paris at the Sorbonne, in fact, uh, started to play around with with. Postmodern theory, in particular what's called poststructuralism in in the formal sense, and they wanted to move conflict theory into the realm of knowledge and language because of their pessimism that 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 communism had failed everywhere it had been tried. Obviously, liberalism couldn't be good from their perspective. Capitalism couldn't be good for the, from their perspective. So they had nowhere to turn. So they turned instead to this idea that we need to deconstruct the very meanings of things. Nothing means anything anymore. Everything is made in in representation and imitation and simulation and simulacra. And these very pessimistic thinkers started to tear apart our relationship to knowledge. And their core claim is that meaning-making structures like language, knowledge, the science and reason are in fact just applications of politics because they are in fact social processes. So you can say science, you know, uses rigorous methodology, but they would say, well, it was a political process to decide what methodologies count as rigorous. So it's still politics. And they moved conflict theory into the realm of language and knowledge. Now, while they were doing that, a particular thinker within the the post-war Frankfurt school, Herbert Marcusa, who had taken up at Columbia University, Turned things very radical. He wrote an essay called Repressive Tolerance in 1965, just preceding the violence of 67 and 68 going into the early 70s. And this very uh, active radicalism uh, based on identity politics rose to the fore and it burned itself out because it was uh, violent and uh, very unpopular. And typically people don't like that as we're starting to see emerging again already now. So then they took good old Antonio Gramsci's advice, who had coined the idea of a long march of the institutions, and they went sort of underground. In specific, they went into our educational uh, facilities, especially our universities, especially into our teachers' colleges by 1980 or so. Postmodern theory started deconstructing everything during this time to the point where it kind of rendered itself silly and just turned into these kind of weird language games that were vigorously made fun of through the 1980s and 1990s except by one group of people, or two, I should say, the the people that we would now call the progenitors of woke. They would be the queer theorists in particular and the black feminists, that being a school of thought, not an identity of a person. And these people saw that if you were, these were people in the critical theory mindset that are wanting to to create liberation from the oppressions of the world as they saw that, whether they're by race or whether they're by hegemonic expectations about sex, gender, and sexuality. They wanted to take that apart, But they saw that postmodern theory was excellent for the tool, except they said that it comes from a position of extreme privilege to be able to deconstruct identity categories that cause oppression that people live. So you can't deconstruct those. So they modified postmodern theory so that it could not deconstruct oppression or anything that is tied to oppression, but only deconstruct what they viewed as systems of power. And in the late 1980s uh, and early 1990s, those two ideas were fused. By specifically, you could name Kimberly Crenshaw, one of the founders of critical race theory, in her famous 91 paper titled Mapping the Margins, where she says explicitly that the point of intersectionality is to provide a provisional concept linking contemporary liberationist politics to postmodern theory in order to advance the radical agenda. She's very explicit about it. So this is when wokeness was born. And this is how wokeness thinks. It has all of the. Conflict theory separates the world into oppressor versus oppressed classes with zero sum conflict, no ability to agree or understand one another across those. And then it takes on the postmodern understanding of truth being just politics by other means, which removes all of the breaks from being able to stand up against it. And so that is the history of wokeness. Wokeness actually means. Understanding the world this way, seeing the entire world through this lens that everything is an application of oppressive politics, including claims to knowledge, claims to truth, facts, evidence, reason. And as we're now seeing on social media, punctuality, loyalty, reliability, kind of the standard backbone virtues and principles that have built our societies up uh, over the past few centuries. So I hope I did an okay job summarizing 150 years of, of intellectual history in a minute or two there.
1: Outstanding, thank you. And I I know we are um, feeling like we're beginning to understand better. Really lots of complex issues. So what we wanna do now is to bring Mike Gonzalez on to to the screen uh, to talk about the foundations of the left and how they're funded and institutionalized uh, to create identity politics. So Mike, bring on the next layer so we can dig deeper into understanding.
0: So thank you, Angela, and I'm glad that Dr. Lindsay uh, crunched 150 years. I'll, I'll take a shorter uh, time span. The first thing I want to say is that uh, uh, anti-racism training is a con. These consultants get paid exorbitant uh, amounts of money. Often these fees come from taxpayer funds. Uh, Robin D'Angelo, for example, uh, got paid $12,000 for a two-hour speech at the University of Kentucky, a public institution, uh, among her clients figure, the city of Oakland, uh, the Metropolitan Council of Minneapolis, and the long-suffering children of the Seattle Public Schools District. Uh, so, so these consultants, in other words, are stealing from our children. I've, I did some research on uh, on a, a culturally responsive teaching some years ago, and I found out that these consultants who, who taught CRT to our teachers were getting uh, huge amounts of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars. They could have gone into books, uh, computers, and so forth. But as Dr. Uh, Lindsay said, we have to take them seriously as well, not just dismiss them as con con artists. There's a a very strong ideological component to this. Uh, uh, The the, the true name of anti-racism training is consciousness-raising struggle sessions, which I think Dr. Lindsay uh, mentioned. Now, consciousness-raising works to demolish what the cultural Marxists call the hegemonic narrative uh, to to you and me and to the normal people listening in, the hegemonic narrative is the great American story, the American dream, uh, the, 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 the 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 fact that the promise of liberty and prosperity that have attracted about a hundred million immigrants from all over the world from 1850 to the present. Uh, this attraction continues to this day. Needless to say, there's a very long line of people out the door waiting to come in. Uh, this, this is not not really a line of people leaving, uh, trying to leave the United States. Uh, uh, but the hard left wants to strangle this goose that laid the golden eggs. Uh, this is not a dream to them, uh, but a nightmare, a nightmare uh, uh, that is of uh, a country that is structurally, systemically, and, and, and institutionally racist. It is too individualistic, and at the same time, too family-centered. Uh, it is profit-driven. It is malist, uh, whatever that means. So to them, this awful American uh, hegemonic narrative must be replaced with a counter-narrative. And these can take place in air-conditioned conference rooms in Congress. Uh, uh, Ms. D'Angelo just, uh, just had a, a session with about 184 members of Congress. Or they could take place in a re-education camp in China, and they made the logical conclusion, of course, in Pol Pot's Cambodia. Uh, now, the theory of, of, of cultural hegemony is, is, is Antonio Gramsci, the Italian communist leader that Dr. Lindsay mentioned, he, he lived uh, he, in the 1920s. He was sent to prison uh, by uh, by Mussolini or one of his, by, by, by the, the system in in fascist Italy. Uh, and there he had time to think. And he came up uh, with the idea, the, the fact that he he realized, and I mentioned all of this in my book, by the way, The Plot to Change America, which I named it that for a reason. I'll give you a snippet of what happened. Gramsci noticed that while Marx and Engels had promised that the, the working class would rise up inexorably and overthrow the bourgeoisie. Uh, That had happened only in in one backwater part of Europe in 1917. All of the revolutions since 1814 had failed. The German Revolution of 1919 failed. There was no German Soviet. The Vienna Russo in Italy had failed. There was no Italian Soviet. Uh, The Hungarian Revolution did succeed, but only for 133 days. And and that was overthrown as well. And America was beyond uh, hope. The American worker was just way too happy to revolt. And that was the problem Uh, to Gramsci. The, the, the worker uh this is all in, in thinking in the 20s and 30s the worker had assumed had had, co- had been co-opted by the cultural givens of his so-called oppressors they they had accepted the family they had accepted religion they had accepted the nation and they had they had accepted the economic system so the oppressors so, uh, so-called no longer needed to use the threat of violence to oppress the workers um uh, so uh so what was needed was consciousness-raising uh, sessions. Uh, they are the intellectual vanguard. Would take, uh, would do the hard work of taking everything that was in the brains of the of, of the oppressed and putting new things in. And it was hard work because that is called brainwashing. Uh, Mr. D'Angelo and the other people who do this kind of training always say, "Well, this is really hard work." Yes, it is. Um, uh, now, so Gramsci can be said to be the first of the neo-Marxists or Western Marxists, or cultural Marxists that Dr. Lindsay talked about. Others followed, such as the Frankfurt School and the postmodernists that Dr. Lindsay mentioned. Uh, but, but this is really what it's about. You have to understand anti-racism training. You have to put it in this context. This is what the, uh, what Ms. D'Angelo does. This is what they do. And we all should be very aware of what is happening. So uh, thank you very much. I hope that gives you a flavor of, uh, of what I, I talk about in my book, The Plot to Change America.
1: Thank you, Mike. Most definitely. So we, we've, we've gotten um, kind of the, the, the philosophical um, underpinnings of critical theory and, and, and identity politics. But we want to invite Chris Ruffo to the screen now to really talk about the weaponization of identity politics and cancel culture and the anti-racism training that you have had some upfront and Personal contact with. So, Chris, join the conversation and, and give us some insight into the things that you've seen across the country.
3: Yeah, uh, thank you for that introduction. And, you know, for the last uh, few months, I've been doing some investigative reporting uh, on critical race theory and the bureaucracy uh, here in Seattle, Washington at the local level, uh, and then all the way up to the Treasury Department and other agencies within the federal government. And uh, what I've discovered is that. Uh, So-called anti-racist training, which is founded uh, kind of theoretically on on some of the concepts that James outlined, uh, but really has translated in practice to a radical political agenda that matches some of the rhetoric from the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and some of the kind of uh, uh, of some specific ideas that you find um, in uh, progressive and, and socialist publications Uh, This is now becoming the default ideology of the bureaucracy, and people are making, uh, in some cases, millions of dollars offering essentially political indoctrination on the public dime to public employees. Uh, And I'd like to take a second to give you a sense of how this has transformed in the United States over the past 100 years, to give some context. Um, You can make a a, a very kind of brief argument that, um, starting with FDR – Uh, in the 1930s, as the federal government grew uh, rapidly, it was really done under a kind of modernist framework. So uh, FDR, uh, you know, uh, love him or hate him, I know Heritage Foundation probably has a diversity of opinions, but uh, the the, the bureaucracy that he built at the time was really founded on the modernist principles of of expansion, of uh, infrastructure development, of large projects, uh, these are, you know, famously uh, building some of the some of the uh, huge architectural achievements of the United States uh, and and, uh, you know, kind of looking out essentially in their way for the common man. Uh, you fast forward then to the 1960s and you get uh, the bureaucracy's uh, operating kind of philosophy was no longer modernism. It was really trying to base the bureaucracy on the social sciences. So you get Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. Uh, You get the huge kind of uh, uh, welfare programs and the welfare state of the 1960s, which was implemented by a group of uh, kind of sarcastically named later as the best and the brightest. These were PhDs from Harvard and other universities, and their kind of self-described goal was to apply the social science literature to social problems and use the power and new scope of the federal bureaucracy to transform society Uh, according to what they thought of as neutral social scientific principles. Um, And unfortunately, uh, that project also failed. And we have now a a welfare state in the United States uh, where we're spending approximately $1.1 trillion a year on means-tested anti-poverty programs that are, in effect, uh, relatively unchanged from those basic conceptions from the 1960s and yet, the poverty rate in the United States is also unchanged since roughly 1969. So, uh, we have kind of the social scientific consensus of the 60s that was the driving uh, operating ideology of the bureaucracy. Uh, I think that both sides of, of the political discourse are realizing that that's failed. And now, fast forward to the 2010s, 2015, 2016, to the present. Um, really under the radar of many people, the federal government is increasingly operating and local governments and school districts and uh, nonprofit organizations, and even some corporate uh, HR departments uh, have now uh, adopted critical race theory as their dominant functioning ideology. And this is particularly alarming at the federal level because you have a, a, an apparatus of federal power that has grown extraordinarily since uh, the days of Woodrow Wilson, through FDR, through LBJ, uh, and this kind of permanently expanding bureaucratic power that uh, until recently, at least theoretically, operated under the ostensible ideology of the social sciences, of neutrality, Um, but, you know, it's really been abandoned, and what I've discovered, you know, talking with whistleblowers, talking with uh, people who are, are leaking me documents and PowerPoint trainings and videos, And then you actually look at the raw source material of what is being uh, taught in in the federal government. Again, whether it's under the Obama administration or under the Trump administration, it really makes no difference. The permanent bureaucracy uh, has really adopted critical race theory as their ideology of choice. And they are perpetuating these really kind of bankrupt concepts of of, uh, uh, white fragility, of whiteness, of... Uh, undoing your whiteness, um, uh, kind of mandatory anti-racism, whatever the most f- recent fad is um, uh, in the kind of academic discourse. They're trying to implant it into the federal bureaucracy. And uh, my sources within the government are telling me it is becoming increasingly intolerable. Um, you know, I have emails coming in. People are saying they're they're scared for their jobs. They're scared to speak out. Uh, in some cases, they're actually being forced to stand up in front of their colleagues and say things like, "I admit that I'm white, I admit that I 'm complicit in systems of white supremacy, I'm here to repent, I'm here to essentially abandon my own whiteness. Um, this is you know straight out of the kind of uh, historical Marxism that has now uh, been, been kind of reimagined in, in kind of HR speak and diversity training. Uh, but what it amounts to, and this will be my, my final comment. Uh, It amounts to a change in regime uh, that hasn't been voted on, that hasn't been approved, that hasn't been uh, supported by voters, but it's essentially a change of regime from within. Uh, You have the the permanent bureaucracy partnering with these uh, grifters, uh, one of whom, Howard Ross, who I've done an investigation into, has billed taxpayers $5 million uh, over the last 15 years for these kinds of trainings, uh, specifically anti-American. Uh, specifically advocating for a radical activism, uh, and in some cases, explicit uh, Marxist programs. And, and you're having this operate um, anti-democratically. And I think it's a huge threat because if, if unless we stand up to this kind of uh, blatant politicizing of the bureaucracy, uh, what we'll find is that in the next few years, especially if there's a change of administration, uh, we'll find that the bureaucracy will be, will be weaponized Uh, Conservative and moderate voices, and even some kind of center left voices within the federal government, uh, will be rooted out. And then the machinery that's been built up for the last century of the federal government uh, will be weaponized against the American people. And I think this is an extraordinary fight that needs to be fought. uh, And I'm grateful that Heritage is tackling these issues.
1: Thank you, Chris. I want to invite our other panelists back to the screen so that we can begin a, a discussion. Um, And as they are coming back on, I want to remind uh, our participants, our audience participants, that you are welcome to submit your questions. We want your voice in this dialogue and want to be able to uh, directly um, respond to your questions. So, gentlemen, I mean, clearly uh, this this course is damaging Americans. I mean, there are no winners here. And I just want to kind of direct back into that Cato study um, on on the fear of censorship. I mean, across the spectrum, we've got Democrats at 52%, Independents at 59%, and Republicans at 77% saying they have a political opinions that they're afraid to share. And as we read more about um, the, the the cancel culture and um, the, 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 the amount of anxiety that is beginning to brew across sectors. We're seeing a shutdown in, in one of our greatest freedoms, freedom of expression and, and, and freedom of speech. So, Jim, I want to go to you first. You, you've got your new book that's coming out in August, Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender and Identity and Why That Harms Everybody. So as we look at this study from Cato, can you give us some insight into the instruction in your book and explain how Americans as a whole are going to lose um, from from this direction in education sure. and, and across um, across our society?
2: Sure. If you if you just listen to what what Chris said a moment ago, you hear just how dysfunctional and and uh, gut wrenching it is to be brought up into one of these kind of struggle sessions. Uh, And so I'll give you a quick example out of cynical theories about how critical race theory in particular, but it could be any of the woke theories, sets you up to lose to always end up in a struggle session, even if it's not forced. So we give the following example. Imagine you own something like a shop where you have to interact with the customers, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have to help them. And so as you come out from behind the counter, two customers happen to enter at the same time, say it's a black person and a white person. Your race doesn't matter in this analysis, as it turns out. And so then you you have to choose who to approach first. So if you choose to approach the white person, critical race theory begins with the assumption that racism is present in this interaction, and it's the critical race theorist's job to find it and call it out, make it visible, make oppression visible, as a saying. So if you approach the white person first, the analysis will be you approached a white person first because you see them as first class citizens, and you see black people as second class citizens, therefore you are a racist. If, however, you approach the black person first, again, the assumption is. Racism is present in the interaction. It is a critical race, race theorist's purpose to find it and call it out, make it visible. If you approach the black person first, the analysis from critical race theory will be, you don't trust black people to be unattended in a store. And so you wanted to, to deal with that first and get the black person out. Therefore, your decision was racist. And so in both cases, you are caught with racism. And to give you an idea of how deeply entrenched this is, we've all, almost all mentioned Robin D'Angelo, this consultant or whatever we want to call her. She explicitly says in a 2013 paper from the very beginning, I think it's 2013. We can check the year on that. The question now has moved from did racism take place for that is to be assumed to how did racism manifest in the present situation? That's a quote from Robin Dangelo about how she thinks. So America and everybody loses when they come into your workplace, they come into your school, they come into your federal agency and they teach everybody there to think that way about everything. Nothing works when people think that way and are constantly looking for the failure. And no matter what you do, it's always going to be that way. So it eats up all your resources looking for racism.
1: Thank you, Jim. And and it looks like your camera got turned off. So if you want to join us back on screen as we get Mike back in the conversation. Mike, you know, you're a scholar of identity politics and you've written an entire book on it, the plot to change America, how, how identity politics is dividing the land of the free. And you've mentioned a counter narrative. I want you to, to, to peel back on that some. Um, you know, what is this new blueprint um, that activists and, and anti-racism consult- consultants are trying to introduce into the fabric of, of, of our society?
0: Well, you know, Karl Marx has been mentioned here a lot, and it is what they do the blueprint is Marxist at heart uh they somebody I think it was Chris mentioned that they want to set up a different regime that is very much in the cards uh they they associate um racism with capitalism. capitalism is just free markets It's people you know being able to 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 strike contracts that are of mutual agreement. They don't like that. they say that and this is beginning with Herbert Crowley. Uh, back in the late 1800s, they say that this is what what produces inequality and racism. And so they what they want to do, a lot of them are committed Marxists, uh and, and what they, they want to do is, is establish this system. Uh and, and you know it, it kind of hurts me to say it because people say, well you're looking on the communists under every 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 bed. No, they are saying it themselves. Uh, they they demand who, who trained Patrice Colores, the founder of, of, of Black Lives Matter, is Eric Mann, a former weatherman. He sees organizing as a, a means to an end, as a means to introduce world communism, world revolution. Um, uh, I, I hate to mention her name again, but Robin DiAngelo herself told the New York Times recently that, that we, we can't have capitalism that capitalism uh, is profit-driven, and when you put profits first, then you hurt people. Let's not forget, she just had a training session, a struggle session, with 184 members of Congress. I I mentioned, and Chris mentioned her public clients, but she also trains Nike. She trains top corporations. This is the latest battle line now, we know because of Rudy Dushka's march through the institutions that did, Hollywood and the, and, and, and the media and the academy has taken over. Their next aim is the corporate world. I just watched, and I'm uh, just a lot, the last thing, I waited four months for opening day with my son, and I watched it last night, and it was, a, it was a, an ode to Black Lives Matter. Uh, you know, I just want to watch baseball, uh, I want to watch excellence on the field, and, and and it has now penetrated this as well.
1: Okay, so, so Chris, let's get you in the conversation. Um, you know, there the emotions are high, and we are in a situation where we where the wet and the water somehow has to get separated, in terms of the bad actors and and the um, the innocent people who are being kind of captured into all of this so Chris talk to us about a pathway forward
3: so I'll I'll start by uh outlining briefly the way forward that doesn't work I think for the last few years what we've tried to do uh, both you know those of us that are on the right including and also including those who are on the center left the strategy has been to appeal to the values uh, to the liberal values of civility of public discourse, of agree to disagree, of kind of the, the old idea of the, the marketplace of ideas um, and, and, and those kind of uh, values. But the problem is that uh, the the other side, let's say, the, the, the critical race theorists, the radical activists, the kind of uh, neo-Marxists, they don't subscribe to any of those values. So because it's not a common value, they don't believe in it. They don't operate under those terms that strategy has largely failed. I mean, we've seen that most recently with the Harper's Letter, where a number of kind of center-left academics and scholars were appealing to those kind of liberal values, uh, and and it, it doesn't work. So I, I'm, I'm increasingly of the mind that in order to combat cancel culture, uh, if we think of cancel culture as a kind of war, if that's our metaphor, we need to achieve arms parity. So it's the kind of old Reagan idea of peace through strength that is now a kind of uh, superimposed upon the internal culture war of the United States. And I think that we're seeing a, a glimpse of this in the last few weeks. I'll give two very short examples. Um, one, you know, you had The New York Times that was threatening to dox uh, the uh, a blogger named Slate Star Codex. Uh, and then you also had The New York Times threatening to dox uh, Fox News host Tucker Carlson. Uh, Both of those people didn't appeal to the kind of niceness or virtue or liberal values of The New York Times. Uh, You know, they basically uh, stepped forward and Tucker said, if you dox me, I'm going to dox you. Uh, And Slate Star Codex deleted his blog and and organized uh, a group of people to essentially fight back. And both of those things worked. The New York Times, the kind of most influential media organization in the country, uh, it backed down. And I think that that is really, in a, a small sense, a metaphor of what has to happen. Um, these are folks who have really no restraints, and you have to uh, kind of meet them where they are uh, and, and, and use the kind of institutional strength and counterbalance that we have to create uh, in order to stand firm against this. Because if we don't come up with a strategy uh, that, that, is, that is based on kind of arms parity uh, with these folks, they're going to continue on this very destructive course. And I think we need to to kind of revitalize uh, some of those uh, founding virtues and values, uh, but then also uh, create the kind of internal strength and confidence. And and I know it works. I know, uh, uh, Dr. Lindsay, I'm sure they've tried to cancel you. Uh, These folks have tried to cancel me many times, uh, but it doesn't work uh, because, you know, we've stood strong. You keep fighting, you get back up. And I think that we need to now create a kind of institutional infrastructure to protect people uh, and to protect uh, the American ideas uh, that that we share
1: well that that's a great segue in terms of talking about protecting and looking at the next generation. Um, you know we We saw uh, yesterday um, in the American Society. they published an article the racism of anti-racist education. And one of the highlights there was um, looking at a program that Rutgers University is doing in their English department. And so the chair there is, is looking at her graduate writing program and eradicating systematic inequities. And she basically says that through this her program, the college is going to incorporate what they call critical grammar into the curriculum. Um, and what this will do is basically encourage students to develop a critical awareness of the variety of choices that are available to them with regard to micro level issues in order to empower them and equip them to to push against biases based on written accents. So in other words, um, some students um, will be um, um, told that they don't have to meet certain standards of being proficient in a discipline. So Jim, getting you back, back into the discussion, uh, when, we, when we look at, at, at K through 12 education in terms of what's coming down the pike, in terms of oppression, racism being taught, uh, in math and social studies and in, in English, um, you know, beyond history. Uh, give us give us your thoughts here in terms of, you know, this 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 thing that will kind of feed into a a soft bigotry of low expectations as as a way to deal with inequity.
2: Yeah, um, this is actually coming into, as you mentioned, math into into basically every subject. The the goal with these ethnic studies programs that are already happening in Seattle, they're they're being installed in possibly in California. Uh, they will spread. Those are test cases are, are actually trying to make every subject about teaching social justice. And so to give you some idea, this is a little bit complicated. In fact, it's going to sound insane. Um, but that is the nature of the theory. So. Michel Foucault, in particular, forwarded this idea, a postmodern philosopher in the the, the 60s, forwarded this idea that there are regimes of truth and that each culture produces its truths according to which statements it's willing to authenticate as true and false. And, of course, as I opened earlier, that's considered to be a political process. The activists who changed postmodernism in the 90s took this a step further and have actually tied this to various racial groups, specifically by taking in the critical theory view that there are oppressors versus oppressed classes in society. And so their view is that things that white Westerners used to build up the modern world are white Western or male also knowledge. And they have those people, white Western males with the Eurocentric perspective, have colonized all other racial cultures which it's already weird to say racial cultures, uh, right? It doesn't make sense, but that's how they think. They have colonized other racial cultures with white Western knowledge and forced them to think in white Western ways. And that's not appropriate. So when you see them saying we need to decolonize the curriculum, that's what they mean is to take things like white Western knowledge, as they call them, or the master's tools, as you'll hear scholars like Alison Bailey refer to them drawing off of Audre Lorde, Uh, Things like epistemic adequacy, which is fancy academic speak for knowing what you're talking about. Uh, Science, reason. As I mentioned in my opening, we've seen productivity, punctuality, uh, loyalty, reliability, uh, soundness of argument, validity of argument. All of these things have been put up as white Western ideas that have colonized other ways of knowing. And so they need to be suppressed so that those other ways of knowing can be brought up. But this literally means they're saying that science and rationality and reason are features of white people and they're not for black people. And if you look at the critical race theory literature, for example, their introductory texts, they say that the the knowledge of black people is storytelling or narrative driving. They, They literally draw the distinction. Science is for white people. Storytelling is for black people. And they want to remake our education system around that. You mentioned the accent and the language. They call that linguistic justice usually. Critical grammar is a new spin on it. But this is a long line of thought where they want to to open the playing field to everything that's not white and western and say that needs to be forwarded in a kind of radical egalitarian agenda to unmake that oppression of knowing what we're talking about.
1: Okay. Wow. So that's so Mike <laughs> you are you are helping to lead the charge here at, here at Heritage. Um, in terms of debunking everything in revisionist history from Howard Zinn to 1619. I, I want your voice here on, as a parent and a scholar, um, what's your reaction to this and in, in, in terms of how it's playing out, like, in the real lives of children?
0: Well, first, I want to say I agree with uh, Dr. Lindsay. It's impossible to talk about this and not sound crazy. So we always have to give the trigger warning, okay, I'm going to sound crazy now. Um, look, we have to, exp- I think the first job is exposing what is going on. They, they, the reason I wrote the plot to change America is because I want to, I want to take on the myths that are out there, the myths of, of for example, the, the creation of categories such as Hispanics or Asian, uh, people, uh, there was a, a University of California professor, Christina, Christina Mora, who was involved with this and she wrote a very good book. She she's a, she's a, oh. a progressive a writer. And she said that people would accept these categories in due time, as they had, as though they had always existed. She called that collective amnesia. Uh, so I think that we need to expose these things, expose Americans, uh, and not just conservatives, but but you know, good old style liberals who actually do like our our liberties, who like uh, the liberal uh, America that we have, because what they're what what these things are doing is that they are fighting against liberal values, such as freedom of speech, as you mentioned, freedom of conscience, all, all, all our basic uh, natural rights. So we have to constantly, and I, I, I think it's great that, uh, that your book is coming out, Dr. Lindsay, uh, because I think the more we write about this, the more we expose people to what has taken place, to, to why, who did it, how they did it, and, and what is the, the real goal here, uh, we can start to demolish this idea that no, this is nice because people need compensatory justice. Look, you know, let's really be honest and and, and with our rancor in our heart, just expose and and have so, uh, sunshine can be a great disinfectant. Let's really allow in the light and and, and expose this for what it is. That's the take approach. That's the approach I want to take.
1: Okay chris I mean we we this conversation is is um, incredible and i I know our time is starting to get near but i want i want to get your last comment into into the discussion before we go to q and a with the with the audience and handing it back over to Andy again remember to um log your questions in the the q and a box so we can hear from you and and speak directly to some of the things that are on your mind. So Chris, Martin Luther King said, we must all learn to live together as brothers or we're gonna all perish together as fools. So despite these grave challenges, um, you you did an incredible film called America Lost*, and it offers a glimpse of hope for rebuilding America's families and our communities, um, um, civil society from the bottom up. So as we get ready to transition into Q&A, Give us, give us some hope based off of what you saw from your incredible film, America Lost.
3: Yeah, you know, what I saw and discovered in the film is the same thing that is really the reality of most people. And I'll, I'll, I'll kind of close with this point of hope. Uh, you know, where I work, I'm here in downtown Seattle. I'm across the street from the SEIU building and the progressive organizers. Uh, this is really kind of ground zero, just out my window of a lot of this insanity um, but this is—you have to keep in mind—a very small group of people that represent uh, a very small and intolerant, but loud and influential minority. Uh, but when I go back home, my cul-de-sac of 18 homes—it's uh, you know myself and my wife uh, next door is a family, uh, a man who served in the military from in Puerto Rico and then immigrated to the United States. Uh, you have uh, you know African American families, families from Vietnam, from Romania, from everywhere. And we take care of each other. We look after each other. We get along with each other. Um, We are really, truly the beating heart of America that people experience in their local communities, in their neighborhoods, in their daily lives. And we have to remember that the abstraction and the spectacle is about 1% of the the kind of raw experience and energy and potential of the United States. But unfortunately, the 99% of people are dormant. Uh, they aren't exposed to this, and that 70% of people who are scared to speak out. We have to wake up the the, the kind of the kind of uh, the, the, the large kind of ballast of America. Uh, we have to alert them to this, expose it that is in direct contradiction to the the life that they live, which is really kind of on those founding ideas of the United States, uh, and, and we have to somehow turn that that strong majority uh in into a, a relevant kind of uh, uh kind of uh, ideological and political and kind of moral force, and I think that's where the solution lies.
1: Thank you well said, well said. Andy Alabastro, we want to get you back on the screen to take us through a q and a so Andy, over to you.
4: Thank you Angela very much uh it's great to be to be back here and as we navigate to q and a we will uh, we'll show some of the work of our guests on the screen. Uh, you'll see some slides. And everybody that's participating in this uh, session will get a follow-up email with links to these resources. James's book, which comes out in a month, but we're told that Amazon is already shipping. Uh, Mike's book that comes out next week. And then Chris, as he just talked about his documentary, he has graciously uh, made that available for free. Uh, we'll send that link around uh, at the conclusion of this session. Uh, thank you for those who have submitted questions. We have a lot uh, i'm gonna you know please keep them coming uh i'm gonna group some of them so that we can get through the number that we have uh, interestingly for our panel i'll just give you a quick indication we, we got a question from casey herb who asked how is critical race theory directly damaging americans uh the question that followed hers was from a gentleman named john kelly who said the cancel culture is attempting to get the state bar of texas president larry mcdougall removed because he described the organization black lives matter as a marxist organization There's a special meeting being held on July 27th. So we can see how this is critically damaging uh, Americans directly. Uh, I welcome our our panelists comment on that, but I'll I'll preface also with this other question. Uh, Alan Roth, a longtime friend of Heritage, Dick Trudeau, a Heritage uh, supporter, and Samuel Hooper all ask, what can concerned Americans do? to combat this dangerous attack on the minds of Americans? And then what practical steps might you recommend? Especially in some cases, these are individuals, they say that they themselves are not cancelable. They don't have, you know, public profiles or Twitter followings. Uh, but what can they do? How can they join this battle? Mike, do you want to take that one first?
0: The question about critical th- theory, it has inhabited every aspect of our lives. We're really all bathing in it at the moment. Uh, there is a, a critical legal theory this critical race theory—it uh, is taught at all levels, and 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 it, it—but it is, as it has been said already, this idea that everything is a power struggle between groups of oppressors versus the oppressed. It, it creates a very antagonistic dynamic, at, 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 you know, in our society. We need to be very aware of it, and and what can be done about it is we need to speak out. I, I'm doing my part. Uh, Chris and Dr. Lindsay are doing their part for, uh, by speaking out, but I think we just every all Americans, uh, the, the, the Americans, are the beating heart of the country, need to be able to talk about this. Need to be able to attend uh, board of education meetings and speak out their minds. Uh, need to be able to 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 talk to their neighbors. Need to be able to talk to each other because this is something that is is as somebody said already. This is an attempt to set up a regime that is nobody nobody has voted on it it is unconstitutional it is a different constitutional order and we need to be very aware of it and speak out against it thank you mike very yeah if, angela
1: comments? if i could jump in um, you, we at heritage are working with what we call a restoring civics working group and we are seeing organizations across the country um putting matters and grabbing matters in their own hands. For example, Nutria uh, Neighbors is a parent group in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, They put forth um, and submitted to the board a freedom of expression resolution for their community. And they are refusing to be canceled and they are showing their children how to stand up on the principles of this nation and to be able to give them the hope to look into the future of of how to lead our society, how to lead our country towards freedom and opportunity. And so, as Mike said, it, it's 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 an interesting dynamic with the onset of COVID-19 and how parents and communities are coming together at this time um, to show that. Uh, they're not going to just give up and and be canceled out, and in addition they're going to make sure that their children are learning the principles that allow them to lead us forward.
4: Wonderful, thank you, Angela. Let me get to two other uh, two other points here and 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 Dr. Lindsay, maybe you could take the first crack at this. Um, Mark Wolfgren from the University of Ottawa uh, says that what he finds striking is that academics are now required to explain how they will support diversity in their cover letters when applying for jobs. Is this not an ideological screening question? And then I'll just add to this, and you can you can take uh, either one of these. Um, we got a question from Ligia, a law professor at Catholic Law School, who's been asked to teach a course on race and the law. Ironically, I was probably chosen on the sole basis of my Hispanic ethnicity, since I never expressed any interest in teaching this course, but none of my white colleagues dared to touch it with a 10-foot pole and then asking for some resources that you might recommend uh, to deal with this from a non-ideological source. But but maybe a little bit about that supporting diversity and cover letters and in applying for jobs. You sort of have to pr- proclaim this. Is this a screening question? What's your thought on that, Dr. Lindsay?
2: Well, I think, in fact, that it is, although that they they bill that it is not. Uh, there was a case that needs to be looked more deeply into at Berkeley in their biology department where they put forth one of these diversity requirements, a statement requirement for new applicants. And they came out, they published a rubric for how it would be scored and critical theory answers got high scores and American values of E pluribus unum kind of diversity got very low scores. And then they had a raft of applicants come in and then ones that's 76%, I believe is the, is the figure that was reported of applicants, were never even had their resume or their CV looked at at all based on their diversity score. So the answer to that is yes, it appears that it is. And um, digging into that and seeing that how that works as a model is probably worth understanding. To kind of tie into all of what's just been said, um, Mike was right earlier when he said that the first step of this is, is, is to expose what's going on. People have to expose it. They also have to be able to explain it And then they have to be able to articulate alternatives like, you know, the American principles, for example. And so as far as non-ideological resources go, that's actually the underlying mission statement of new discourses is expose, explain, articulate alternatives uh, to whatever it is that's holding us down. And so I've been producing, I've published a large amount of materials on new discourses. It's all free. You can go access whatever you want. But I'm also writing an encyclopedia of social justice terminology single handedly, which is a big task on new discourses, and you can go and see how they actually use this manipulative terminology. When they say identity, what do they mean? When they say problematize, what do they mean? When they say racism, what do they mean? And there are over 100 entries already written available for people on that encyclopedia on, on my website. So going to inform yourself and then showing up to those school board meetings or whatever other meetings uh, the, to push back. If Once you know the lingo, Part of their game is actually to make you be on your heels by making you look like the stupid one who doesn't know the the sophisticated theory. It's very shallow. If you know a little bit of their sophisticated theory, you can easily turn it back around and argue against it. So go inform yourselves and then organize at least loosely, but ideally, but more formally and then show up. And then that's how you can fight back.
4: Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Lindsay. Quick, quick question. We're at the top of the hour. I think we'll we'll sort of slide a few extra minutes. There's some good questions here. If you all can allow for that, Chris, I'll, Christopher, I'll ask you this question, and then I have another one for for Mike and Angela. But we, uh, Christopher, we got this note from Rose, and she's a student at American University and a summer academy fellow here at Heritage. Last semester, she had to read White Fragility for a class. While she was lucky to have a professor that was open to allowing other views to be heard, she still felt and continues to feel pressure. From her peers to conform to this ideology. she's comfortable and strong in her conservative beliefs, but she still feels pressure and scared to speak out publicly against this leftism out of fear of being harassed, doxed, and canceled. You've done this research you've been undercovering uh, great information. people are reaching out to you from other federal agencies there's there's hope that there are many more people willing to come forward but how do you what do you say to a young student who wants to find the courage? voice their beliefs when the consequences seem so high?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that that is the critical question. And I, I think there's a couple things that you can do. Uh, one is just uh, don't back down, uh, you know, speak on principle. And if you believe it, commit to it. Uh, and, and I think that uh, but as far as how to feel better about doing that and getting overcoming that fear, overcoming that kind of social ostracism or criticism that might arise, I think it's really to connect with other like-minded people on campus. Um, And even, you know, if you can connect in a way that is informal. I know that uh, when I was uh, living in the heart of the city of Seattle, I was getting a lot of heat. I was getting activists uh, surrounding my house sometimes, putting up posters around my neighborhood with my face on it. Uh, I mean, all sorts of very intimidating things. Uh, I I found tremendous uh, courage and kind of uh, encouragement uh, by forming a group of like-minded men, uh, or, and this could be also with women or, or kind of mixed, but we had dinners once a month where we would just blow off the theme, uh, talk about what happened. It was all off the record. And every month that would kind of re-energize me and keep, keep me kind of calibrated to the reason why I'm fighting, who I'm fighting for, uh, and then also just to remind myself that despite the fact that most people uh, are too afraid and remain silent, uh, there were legions of people out there supporting me, and then I could directly reach out to people uh, who could keep encouraging me to fight for them. So I, I think that's the, the best way to do it. And I think that, you know, more broadly, I, I, as as folks of us who are kind of uh, self-consciously on the right, I think we need to recognize that the institutional playing field is quite different than it was in 1969. Uh, in 1969, the radicals were fighting against a kind of mainstream conservative institutions uh, and leadership who are controlling universities, bureaucracies, all the levers of power. uh, We need to recognize very explicitly that that's now flipped. Uh, The radicals of 1969 and their kids are now in control of the institutions. And as conservatives strategically, we need to think of ourselves uh, almost as kind of a rebel force uh, because that is the kind of power reality uh, that we see today. uh, And I think that we need to catch up kind of intellectually to that and, and adapt our strategies accordingly.
4: Thank you very much for that. Uh, in a related sense, uh, Mike and then Angela, um, we have a question from our friend Justin Danoff at the National Center for Public Policy Research. But, but the idea of, of an individual's courage, I think, is is here as well, but, but even a practical thought around what somebody could do. Justin says, what would you would advise a conservative employee at, say, Nike? Who objects to a corporate training on critical race theory or a training from the radical human rights campaign you know what might you suggest to that person that individual uh, as a course of action whether you know practical inside their place of business or uh, just as an individual Mike, would you want to take that first
0: yeah that's uh that's very tough i uh, I don't want to get anybody fired and we we do live in the America that we do live in but look people fought in 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 the Eastern Bloc people fought in the Soviet Union. Uh, for, for the right to speak out, I think. And, and we're not there yet, but by golly, we're getting there. Um, so you, you need to say, you need to raise your hand and say to the extent that you can, uh, be, be prudential about it, say, look, I, I really do not want to do this. This is, and here are the reasons why I don't want to do this. Explain yourself, uh, as, as, as as I believe Chris said, you know, Arm yourself with the knowledge so you can talk back to the HR person and explain why you don't want to do this. And I will say that a great place to start. I cannot say enough good things about uh, Dr. Lindsay's encyclopedia. I've begun to use it. Uh, I myself discuss some of these new terms in my book, Uh, but this is a very extensive work that I think anybody can go online and begin to read. It's really super crazy stuff, but it's what's behind what HR is trying to do. So you need to talk to HR back in this language, and don't no get fired, please.
1: I have a I have a I have another um, perspective to share, and I I think Mike's is outstanding. But if you decided to actually engage in the training, uh, I think the work that Chris has done is 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 an example of of what could come out of participating. You could go in to see what's happening, uh, to share that information firsthand, and you can go in armed, as Mike said. Um, and shed light on the principles that you stand on, and create it as an opportunity to educate and bring awareness to others, and to be a disruptor um, to 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 that environment. And again, we are not encouraging you to be fired.
3: I, I would just add very briefly, uh, if you are listening and you have gone through a training or are going through the training, another thing you can do is leak me all of the documents and materials. Uh, you can send it directly to me. I will blow it up. Uh, you know, I've created 50 million media impressions in the last 28 days uh, exposing this stuff. So, uh, I'm, I'm always available for, uh, for to be the receptacle of all these bad ideas.
2: Yeah. Yeah, If you want something very specific, by the way, we actually just published a 6,000 word exploration of what you can do, including a sample letter. You can send to HR and new discourses. It's near the top. Uh, How to Talk to Your Employers About Anti-Racism is the title of it, and it explores the theory, enough of the concepts, and gives you a template letter you can actually send to your
4: HR department to show how to do it. I I think something that each of our guests have have hit on um, and that uh, Bridget Wagner at Heritage reminds me is courage is contagious, right? The recommendations are excellent, but you, you must encourage you know your friends and your peers and your and your neighbors and your family. Share this video with others and, and help them understand wokeism and uh, bring ideas uh, back to us and to this group individually and collectively. Um, but it's very much uh, part of the conversation we have to have. And I think it segues into this. It's a, this is a good question from Terry Wood, um, which is is really for the group. Um, why are conservatives seemingly just now waking up to the hard left and woke progressives? And and if you take issue with the framing of that, please say so. But but it does seem as if this has been a long march, a phrase that we've used. Um, and is it is the response, you know, sort of appropriately timed uh, or is it is it just something some are waking up to now? Dr. Lindsay, do you want to take that first?
2: Sure. I think this is a hard question for me because I am the secret leftist. Not really, but I am on the left. So it is this is a harder question for me to answer because I don't know conservative psychology or sociology as well as I know the center left. I can speak to that, however, and among kind of reasonable people on the right, I think it would apply as well. And that is because this ideology preys upon our best impulses and it presents itself in a very nice package. It looks like the right thing to do. It looks like fighting racism. It sells itself under the the, the term social justice. It's very much I mean, it's I know. I may be dating myself a bit here or being a bit silly, but it's very much like the movie Gremlins where you go and you buy the cute package. And then the second it it eats a piece of pizza, it turns into a monster that tears apart everything. It's very much like that. It's not the same thing that people think they're buying. So I think that people have heard, well, yeah, of course we don't want racism. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to be involved in that. And so they've, they've kind of not been aware that it's, and it's also crazy. So it's very hard to believe that people actually mean the things they're writing Plus, they're hard to read and nobody reads them. From my perspective, looking at the conservatives as somebody who's not one, my perception has been that you've been too focused on Marxism specifically and not paying attention to the way that it shifted into culture. And so it's been this, you know, CPAC was titled America versus socialism this year. It's like, no, the real problem is America versus tearing apart the belief in the objective world, um, which is, is a slightly different problem. And so by by missing the boat and focusing on too much of the economic issue, which is is back burner compared to the identity issue, I think that, that conservatives have missed what's happening and haven't dug into it the way they need to.
0: Speaking as a conservative, uh, I want to say, Dr. Lindsay, this is I agree with you completely. This is not a right and left issue. This is an enlightenment issue versus what, what is the modern era? It's, it's what begins in the 1600s. A postmodern era is the negation of, of, of using reason to be able to access uh, realities about, about what's, what's true about human nature. Um, on, the, on the Marxism question, it is cultural Marxism. It, it, is, it is changing the locus of, of, of rebellion from the, the, the economic classes to the identities based on race, ethnicity, sex, sexual orientation, gender, and so forth. So it is still a, a, it's the same mindset of the oppressed versus the oppressor, although it's no longer expressed in economic classes. I'll leave it there.
3: And and I'll add just a a final comment. I think part of this is a historical artifact. I think conservatives of uh, maybe kind of an older generation from me, uh, you know, the Cold War was over. Uh, the Soviet Union collapsed. Communism was dead and gone forever. Um, and I think that people got a bit complacent and didn't realize that it could morph into something new. Uh, so I think people, uh, especially who lived through the Cold War, um, kind of took a, 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 what I think Francis Fukuyama called the holiday from history. Uh, turns out that uh, it wasn't quite a holiday, uh, and uh, and history doesn't quite end. But uh, but but I think th- there's another kind of battle that I think we need to fight. And unfortunately, I think the the right has developed a, a great think tank infrastructure debating policy. Uh, but policy is really an kind of an epiphenomenon of of epistemology. And I think that we haven't quite grappled with the fact that we're not now debating policy. We're not now debating legislation or bills. We're actually debating the fundamentals of, of how knowledge is constructed, And I think we have to go to that kind of subterranean battlefield and try to reestablish the grounds of debate, Uh, because if they just have destroyed the grounds of debate, and I think we have to accept that they have, uh, we need to reestablish new grounds and and, and fight the fight where it is today. And I think that we have to look at epistemology making institutions. This is academia, uh, media, social media, uh, and, and, and really fighting in the streets. And, and we need to figure out how to reestablish the grounds of that kind of uh, a, a kind of modern ideology, uh, and, and that's where I think the fight needs to head um, in the in the in the days and years to come.
0: You're just thirty in- seconds on that, Chris. I I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with anything you just said. But there are remedies in the policy realm. There are things you can do. The government can get out of the business of creating categories uh officializing these categories the activists I, I i i write all about this in my book the activists who were influenced by this thinking force the government to create the categories get rid of the policies that force people to adhere to the categories this is not going to be the end of everything but there are policy remedies go ahead Angela. sorry
1: yeah and I, I i agree with mike the policy we've, we've been fighting that and i think a part of the, a part of the sting in where we really are is when we are listening to our children and our grandchildren and the rhetoric and the messaging there and the conversations um are not aligned with what they've been taught um and and, and what we know they believe at their heart and the challenges that they have in the academy And so I think conservatives have have been fighting back in terms of you're starting to see a shift even in the academy where conservatives are deciding where to send their children for college so that they're not Mm -hmm. indoctrinated. In K through 12, you're seeing an uptick in homeschooling where parents are grabbing their children with all their might to make sure that they're not indoctrinated with revisionist history and the integration of, of racism and all these other things through every subject matter. And so I think that the time that we're in um, is is exposing an opportunity for us to even be louder and more assertive in this urgency uh, to preserve the future of of and legacy of freedom and opportunity in this country.
4: That's wonderful, Angela. Thank you, thank you everybody. I- I'd like to, I think we're we're at one fifteen here, hour 15 into this conversation. So uh, I'm not sure that those closing comments that I'll offer you all could get better than the last statements each of you made, but I want to give you that opportunity. Um, and uh, we've gotten so many good questions we have not gotten to, but also a, a, just a bevy of requests for information, resources, and ways in which to engage on this topic. And so we will be following up with everybody who's on here. This is being recorded. It will be available on Heritage .org within the next 48 hours, if not sooner. Uh, and so with that, though, I'd like to offer uh, Christopher, do you want to have any other closing comments?
3: Yeah, I, I'd just like to say that um, uh, to, thank you to Heritage. Thank you to all the other panelists. Uh, this is a really fascinating new area of study. Uh, and 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 I, I think it, it couldn't be more important as we go into uh, this new century.
4: Thank you very much. Dr. Lindsay?
2: Yeah, this is a different way to think about the world. It is different epistemologically. It is different ethically. And uh, the most hopeful thing I can tell you is that it's actually fairly flimsy in both. And if you need courage, you need to remember that if you're standing up for enlightenment, modernist, American principles, you actually have the moral high ground and you have the epistemological high ground. Science still works to find out knowledge about the world, whether they want to denigrate it or not. So you have the high ground. Let that be the source of of, of your backbone, because you can stand proud in in knowing that you're right and fight back on those battlegrounds like that Chris outlined and that Mike has outlined
4: uh, in terms of policy. Thank you very much. Mike, closing comments?
0: Well, I mean, just to follow on what what my two colleagues just said, America is the, the end product of these enlightenment and modern ideas. America is a good country with all its words and all its problems, I have lived at least a year in seven countries as a foreign correspondent. Do not let people change America from what it is, from, from this this great this great machine that produces, that allows people to, to flourish, allows families to flourish, that gives us unheard of tons of liberty and prosperity. It, the schemes and the models that Dr. Lindsay and, and Chris were just discussing want to change this they want to replace what we have do not let it happen do not let it happen thank you mike angela
1: yeah i'd I'd like to go back to that quote from alexis de Tocqueville uh, that i mentioned earlier you know everybody feels the evil and this is the moment for us to answer that we've got the courage and the energy to seek the cure And we need to remember that America was born out of a revolution and that over the last 244 years or so, America has proven to be resilient. I mean, we fought our war of independence. We engaged in our bloody civil war. We plunged through a Great Depression. We looked down the barrel of the Soviet might and President Reagan said, tear down these walls. And so we are not, as Americans, going to be defeated from the inside. And with that hope, we are sure that our children and our children's children will get a better America than we inherited.
4: Wonderful, thank you. This is a wonderful conversation. It, it, it doesn't end with this program today. I have, however, I believe this program has shaped it in a meaningful and thoughtful way. And that's a thanks to our panelists. Thank you, James, Chris, and Mike for your comments today and the work that you do every day. Thank you to Angela for leading this conversation and for all you do to shape this debate nationally. We thank everyone for joining us. For all the questions, which we apologize we could not get to, uh, email me directly, andrew.alabastro at heritage.org. If you'd like to follow up, however, we will send you an email with a survey with all the resources that we have. We will continue that conversation with you. Please visit heritage.org for these recordings and upcoming programs. Thank you.